uh, to 17. Okay, when I was a, a student in Edinburgh a long, long, long time ago, I stayed in a flat uh, with seven other people. Okay, so there you go. There's a flat of seven, uh, eight of us. And my maths was poor. Let me down already. So there's eight of us uh, in the flat. Now, when I look back on that situation, it was largely a positive uh, time in my life, except for the occasion uh, where two of my flatmates, they had a major and serious uh, falling out. Have you ever been in that stage where you've, a situation where you've stayed in a flat, stayed with people where there's been a following out, falling out? If you have, you know what it's like, right? You know that that can cast a pretty long shadow. There's going to be a lot of tension and a, a lot of stress. So how did we resolve uh, this big problem in the flat? Well, one bright spark suggested that what we would do, wait for it, is that we should have a flat meeting, okay? The horror, horror. So cheesy as well, isn't it? But we would have a flat meeting and it was so ridiculously weird, okay? So you can imagine that there's eight of us gathered around this dining table and we were all doing everything in our power to avoid talking about the issue, you know, none of us, none of us wanted to be the first person to talk about the stress and this argument. So we just descended into talking about small talk. You know, it was like, we never talk about the weather as a group of friends, but we were talking about the weather or talking about each other's family. So what happened? How did we deal with it? Well, one of our flatmates, eventually he took the bull by its horns and he sort of calmed us down. And so I don't know if he'd knocked on the table or he cleared his throat. But he silenced us and he basically said, right, okay, let's cut to the chase. Enough of that. Enough of the small talk. We've got a serious issue to deal with here. So let's get to the matter at hand. Follow? Do you see it? I need you to appreciate that as we turn back to the Bible this morning... That, in effect, is what is happening here. See, part of the reason that the Apostle Peter writes this letter to this church, or these churches, is because of opposition that they were facing. And you're with me by now that he's he's kind of hinted at that opposition, hasn't he? He's mentioned the opposition. You need to appreciate right at this moment, here, right now, verse 13, Peter clears his throat. Peter knocks on the dining table and he says, right, let's cut to the chase. We've talked about a lot of other stuff. We've got a serious issue to deal with. Let's get to the matter at hand and let's talk about a Christian and a Christian's response to opposition. So what does he say? Well, what I want to do... uh, just now is to try and structure the sermon around four words, four simple words. I'm going to give you these words just now uh, for my own benefit that if I forget them, you can remind me later on. So four words that will structure this sermon around. Here they are. Try and get them. We're going to look at motivation. You got it? Motivation. Then we'll think about disposition. So motivation, disposition. Third one, preparation preparation, and then the last one is transformation. We all got it. The kids got it. You're filling in blanks in your worksheet. Try to spell these words. Okay, motivation. What was the next one? Disposition, preparation, and 
transformation. Okay, so if we've got our Bibles there in front of us, you've got your print off, you've got your, you've got scripture, you've got your phone. What's the first one? What's the first one, Ellie Rose? Motivation. Okay, let's think about motivation. Right, has anyone in the room heard of the, uh, the kids TV program, uh, Mr. Ben? You heard of Mr. Not Mr. Bean. They love Mr. Bean. It's not Mr. Bean. But do you remember Mr. Ben? Maybe I'm showing my age. Um, and the problem is, I don't know. I can't see your responses. I can't see if you're smiling. I'm just like, I've got no idea what Mr. Ben is. Show my age. But in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, there was a TV program, a cartoon uh, called Mr. Ben. And this was for Mr. Ben. Every week, he would go to a fancy dress shop. And each episode, Mr. Ben would try on a different costume. So it would maybe be like trying on a, a cowboy outfit, or he would try on a, a knight uniform. And what would happen every episode is he would be, as soon as he put it on, he'd be whisked back in history, was Mr. Ben, whisked back in time, and he would have some mad adventure as a cowboy or as a knight. Now, that's silly. Much more seriously, I honestly think, if we're going to understand this portion of Scripture, you and I need to do a Mr. Ben. We need to kind of whisk ourselves back to the first century church, because What have we seen? What have I mentioned to you a number of times? That these people in this church were being, what was the word I've said a few times? They've been ostracized. That's the idea, isn't it? Now, can you begin to imagine what that would be like? So you're being passed over. These people passed over for jobs and they're being passed over for promotions and they're being excluded from these clubs and societies that were so important in the first century world. They're just being insulted on the streets. And what's the reasoning for it? The reasoning is simply that they're part of the church, this newfangled group of what the Christians who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you do the Mr. Ben thing, and if you imagine, really immerse yourself in that, then I ask you, can, can you, can you reckon how these people must have been feeling? There is, in the first century church, I think, a danger of a certain resignation settling in in the church. Do you see why? Like a a defeatism almost. I mean, they're suffering. They're going through such a hard time. What do they know? They are hearing that that's only set to get worse under Emperor Nero. So you can see there could be this fatalism that kind of descends over the people of God. Now, here's the reality with that. Peter knows that that's a danger. So as he begins really to clear his throat and say, let's cut to the heart of this, what he does, he really inspires the people of God to tackle opposition. What he does right here at the start is he provides two motivations for the Christian church to tackle opposition head on. Two motivations. Now do this. Look at verse 13 and see the first motivation that he gives. Do you see? Have you got verse 13? He says to these Christians, ostracized, opposed, he says, now who's really going to harm you? Like, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Now, does everyone see what he's doing there? He's reminding the Christian church of actually just a a general principle in the Christian life, 
that when we pursue godliness, more often than not, actually, you and I are not going to be opposed and abused. Now, did you hear that? Like, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, the reality is that, yes, suffering is always bubbling away, isn't it? And persecution is always ready to burst out against the church. But if you think about it, such as God's restraining or common grace, actually, when we pursue godliness, more often than not, there is an opposition. You can see it, right? Think about it in your own life. Let's say you help at a food bank help a homeless shelter, or even try to love your neighbor next door to you for the glory of Christ. Sometimes you're going to face ridicule. Sometimes you're going to be opposed, but more often than not, that's actually not what happens. Do you see a general principle? Hang on, though. What does Peter know? He knows there are exceptions to that rule, and he knows that some of the recipients of this letter are being opposed. So, what is the second motivation that he gives? Look at it in verse 14. Give you a second. Verse 14. So he's saying, more often than not, you're not going to be opposed. But, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, what's the motivation? Do you see what he says? He says, you will be blessed. Now, maybe if you were here last week, you're saying, ah, oh, is that not just the same message as last week? There's opposition and it leads to blessings. It's not. It's much more general. But I'm going to turn it to you and ask you, do you see what Peter's doing? By talking suffering, I'm talking about blessing. Do you see what he's doing? By now, everyone knows, in this room, everyone knows that Peter has in view end time blessing doesn't he? Future blessing. What's going to happen? Christ Jesus, our Lord, shall return. And we will stand before Jesus, and we will see him. We will see his eyes. We will see our Lord of what will happen to the people of God. Christ Jesus will embrace us. And Christ Jesus at that moment will grant us our inheritance. And Christ Jesus will usher us into this heavens, new heavens, new earth. We will enjoy rich fellowship and wait for it. For how long? Forever and evermore. Do you see what Peter is doing by talking about blessing in the face of suffering? Do you see what he's doing? He is providing the Christian church with perspective perspective he's saying to christians yes you may be opposed you may even face persecution but how long is that going to last but a breath you blink and it is done it is nothing when compared to the eternity that we are going to enjoy with the lord jesus christ and when you see that when you look to him and his return. Surely it is that like these people, you are motivated to face ridicule, hostility, and opposition today. So, motivation. Second word, do we remember it? Anyone remember it? Disposition. Disposition. Okay, even if you've never heard of Mr. Ben, you more likely will have heard of the Spartan army, the Spartans. 
The, Spartan, the Spartans were, of course, one of the most feared armies, ferocious armies in the ancient world. Well, interestingly, I was reading about the, the Spartans this week, and they uh, did not attribute their uh, success uh, to their strength. And this, you know, successful war machine didn't attribute their success to their strategy, but they attributed their success to the mindset or the disposition that they would adopt before battles. Everyone get the idea? So as important as their weaponry, as important as their strength or whatever, was actually the attitude that they adopted for the fight. That was everything to the Spartans. Well, here, as Peter now actually turns to the very practical specifics of how a Christian is to deal with opposition, it's to the Christian mindset or disposition that he turns. Now, what Peter does is he gives us an attitude for battle that we should avoid. And then Peter gives us an attitude for battle that we need to adopt. So for the first of those, look at the end of verse 14. The end of verse 14. Do you see the disposition, the attitude, the mindset? He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right Now, that, in a sense, uh, is not rocket science, is it? Like, it's, it's obvious to see what Peter's saying. He's saying, if you're opposed as a Christian, don't fear the opposition and don't fear your opponents. That's fine. But I wonder if you would stand with me on this and agree with me on this, that it might be obvious what he's saying, but it's absolutely necessary that he deals with this matter. Because is it not the case that right in our very core, right in our being, just innate in us, is a hatred of disapproval? Now, I'm, I'm willing to accept that that is maybe not universally the case, but surely it's not just me. Surely it is the case for most of us. You think back to the school playground. Is it not the case from childhood onwards, there is something in us that absolutely hates people being against us? And we just loathe, we just despise that people would be set against us or opposed to us or, or that they would hate us or that they would speak ill of us behind our backs. There is something right, right in there that just, we loathe this. And what does that lead to? It leads to this genuine fear of those circumstances. And Peter's saying to us, you don't fear that. You don't fear it. So we come back to the apostle, don't we? And we say, how? It's not just that there's a tap somewhere that we turn off that means we're not frightened of being opposed. So Peter, how do we do, how do, how is it possible that we have no fear? Well, he tells you. But this is what I want you to do, okay? I would ask you to find verse 15, the first phrase in verse 15. Now this is Peter telling us the attitude to adopt. But what I want you to do is to read it through a couple of times. And I'll tell you why. This phrase is very often misinterpreted or misunderstood. So I want you to read it through a couple of times to work out what do you think he said, what do you think is this attitude? What is he exactly saying? So everyone got verse 15? You've maybe flicked through it. You've maybe read it. I'll read it with you at least once. Let's get it. So don't fear. Have no fear of the opponent. Instead, what's the attitude to adopt? In your hearts, 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy. I'll read it again, can I? You'll follow it if you didn't get it last time. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, I wonder, I'd love to survey everyone. I wonder what you think Peter's saying saying there. Now, the reason that I'm dealing with this is the following, that so many people interpret that as being about personal holiness. So do you see the idea? The focus is on holiness there. But about personal holiness. So the idea would be that Peter's saying, you're opposed to a Christian or ridiculed. Don't fear that person. Instead, the attitude, the mindset you've got to adopt is on yourself and your purity and your obedience. So don't worry about them, right? Like, don't worry about that opponent. You worry about obeying God personally. Does everybody see that? That that's an argument that you would... Now, what do you think of that? You might think, sounds pretty good. Certainly sounds reasonably biblical. I want to suggest to you that's not what Peter's saying there at all. And here's the key. There, Peter is actually quoting. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8. And I reckon if I read to you Isaiah chapter 8, you're actually going to see what it is that Peter is saying and that it's not about personal holiness. So you ready for it? This is Isaiah chapter 8. Listen to this. Isaiah the prophet says, Do not fear them. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Do you get the stress? Do you get the emphasis? Do you see why or what Peter is saying by quoting Isaiah? This is not about personal holiness. Peter's calling for the Christian church under opposition to make sure, number one, number one, we fear God. Isn't it? That if we are opposed, if we are beset by evil men, that everything about that, our actions, our responses, our emotions, everything should be infused by this primary reverence and awe for God and a knowledge, even at the time of opposition, a knowledge that Jesus Christ is our King. He is the one we fear. He is the sovereign God and Lord of all. But maybe, maybe it's always with these sorts of themes. We have to deal with your objection. Because you know how it is. Maybe there's some in the room who are saying, actually, this is not relevant. That because in London today we are not physically persecuted and facing overt persecution, that a section like this is actually, some of the other stuff in First Peter is great and it's relevant. This is just nonsense. This is not right. Maybe you're thinking like that. Maybe some of the people at home are thinking like that. Well, I would say back to you, if you're thinking along those lines, yes, we're not facing persecution. Like We shouldn't talk about it in that sense. We're not facing overt persecution, physical persecution. But I do believe that the church in London needs to wake up. In a society like ours, in a society where Christianity is quite simply laughed at, in a, in a society where Christianity, worse, in a society where Christianity is largely ignored, the principles that Peter puts out here about opposition, they very much do apply to our circumstances, our situation, our context here. 
So I'm going to plead with you that as you go into battle this week, I wonder if you thought of it like that as a Christian. That's what you're doing. As you go into battle this week, you do what the Spartans did. You make sure you get your mindset right for war, for battle, spiritual battle. And you remember, number one, Christ is with you. And maybe perhaps even more more important than that, you remember this. Christ is with you. But Christ Jesus is to be feared. Christ is Lord of all. So, motivation, disposition. Thirdly, preparation. Preparation. Now, as we work through uh, books of the Bible in the way that we do uh, at LCPC, so, you know, by now what we do, we work through the Bible sequentially, don't we? So, as we do it in order, inevitably there's times where you and I arrive at very well-known phrases and verses of the Bible, aren't there? We, I remember that when we worked through the letters of Re- Revelation. You're working through this, and then you get to the, the phrase where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Or you're working through the Sermon on the Mount, and you work through it, and then you get love your neighbor as yourself. You're, you're with me. We work through the books, and we get to phrases and verses that people, Christians, know very well and sometimes know off by heart. I wonder that that's what happens right now. Have a look at halfway through verse 15. I hope, I hope I'm right here. Always be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. LCPC. Are you familiar with that phrase? Please nod your head. Don't smile. I will not know if you're smiling. Nod your heads. There's a few who know this phrase off by heart, right? So we know it. There's a danger, isn't there, that follows. You can see it, right? Such is our familiarity. You know, if we are familiar with a phrase or a verse and it just rolls off the tongue, what can happen? What can happen is that we do not give that phrase due consideration. I don't want us to make that mistake here. So what would you say Peter is getting at there? Let me read it to you. What is he speaking about? Always be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. What's he getting at? I think the apostle there is saying that there should be an expectation in your heart, right? That if we are opposed and we handle this well, that we should anticipate being asked. We should anticipate questions. And not just general questions. Did you notice what he talks about? Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. And this is Peter. So what's hope? It's an eschatological confidence. But it's for the future. We should be a people, even in opposition, should, should anticipate, expect questions about everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to direct you to two things in the text. First one is the tone that you and I are to adopt when asked about Christ and our hope. Look at the end of the verse. Look at the end of verse 15. So if you're asked about everlasting life, you're asked about the gospel, asked about hope, are we to be aggressive? (laughs) Are we to be dismissive? There it is again. That Christ-like quality of gentleness. 
You and I are to be respectful when asked. That's one thing. The next thing is more important almost. I want to ask you to consider the exhortation itself. So here's my question for you. Please wrestle with it. What is God commanding you to do there? I'll read it to you again. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. What's that exhortation about? Christian friend, do you think it there that God is saying, I must answer the question when I'm asked? Is that what Peter's getting at? Is that what the Holy Spirit's getting at? Look at the first two words. This is about you being prepared to answer the question. This is about your readiness. And because I think this is so critically important, I simply want to ask you a question, and it's this, are you currently prepared to answer questions about your eschatological confidence? Like, I think honestly, quite simply, we're probably guilty when it comes to First Peter chapter 3. I wonder if you would agree with that. Let's say immediately after the service, Somebody asks you, not just about Jesus, but asks you, why are you so at peace when this society seems so opposed to Christianity? What is giving you hope for everlasting life? Are you really prepared to answer that question? And not just to say, oh, because I believe in Jesus. I mean, are you prepared to give a jargon-free well-considered answer to these sorts of questions. Answers that would glorify Jesus and explain the good news of the gospel to that person who asks you, are you prepared to do that? If not, a couple of suggestions. One, I think you and I need to work harder to have an answer. Work hard. I mean, you might think, come on, Andy, that seems really mechanical, doesn't it? Like really cold. We've got to work out an answer. But if we're going to be prepared, we have to prepare, do we not? So do we not have to study Scripture? Do we not have to think and consider how we might? Do we not even have to sit and write out suggested answers about our eschatological hope? One, we work out an answer. The second thing is surely we need to practice. Practice. When I was in Edinburgh, just shortly after the time I stayed in that flat, I went to a church where there was an elder that you may have heard of. Um, His name is uh, Guy Richard. I see you might have heard of him because he's a big theologian now in America. I don't mean, I don't mean he's put on a lot of weight as a big theologian. No, he didn't, I didn't need to qualify that, I don't suppose. But, you know, he writes for Tabletop Magazine. He's a big seminary, that sort of thing. Guy Richard. Now he had a common practice. I'm not sure if it was every week. I certainly remember it happening frequently. So he was an elder in the church, and what he used to do was stand at the door of the church every Sunday morning. And as the young guys would come into the church, he would greet them, you know, hand outstretched in a time where you didn't have to worry about bugs so much. You know, hi Andy, morning Andy. And then he would do this every time. Hi Andy, what's the gospel? And then the next guy would come in. You know, hi, Matthew. 
Give me the reason for the hope that you have. You know, next person. Tell me the good news. Now you can see what he's doing. He didn't want answers. He did, he knew the answers, right? You can see what he was doing. He was getting young Christians ready. He was getting Christians to prepare. And I tell you, it worked. I would go away and I would be petrified of next Sunday morning. Absolutely petrified. And I'd be thinking, how am I going to answer Guy Richard this Sunday? What am I going to say to him? And it worked. It forced me to be ready, forced me to be prepared. And I simply suggest to us as a church that we do something similar. Could it be that it would be of evangelistic benefit if we were simply to ask each other more questions? Like in your flat and in your home with your Christian flatmate to ask, tell me, what's the gospel? Tell me, what's the good, how would you explain the good news? With children, do we not need to do this? What's the gospel? And help them to be able to verbalize the truth. Do we not need to ask each other, what is the basis for our great eschatological hope in Christ? And then I'm going to close the sermon with a fourth thing. I wonder if anyone can remember what it would be. as motivation, disposition, preparation, and transformation. Okay, I wonder if you would go along with me on this. If you disagree, it's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. But I reckon that this portion of Scripture has the most surprising of conclusions. It's a surprising end that we come to. Because what Peter does is he tells us why we've got to be ready with an answer. And he tells us why we've got to answer well our opponent. But what would you expect him to say? Why should we be ready for opposition? To glorify Jesus, right? Or that we might be sort of lifted up in the end. Something like that? No. Not a bit of it. Look at the end of verse 16. We are to be ready with an answer. We've got to answer well, our opponent. That those who oppose and revile us. Now look at those words. We've got to do that. That they may be put to shame. Now, let me repeat to you what I've said to you before. It's not shame like you think or I think. Shame in the Bible is not embarrassment. It's not that I must answer my persecutor well that they'll get a red face. Shame in Scripture is infinitely different. Shame is the idea of, listen very carefully, it is of someone being given over to their enemies. Shame in the Bible being at the mercy of enemies. So I wonder, do you see what Peter is saying about the opponents? We all know primarily he's got the end in view. By now we know this, don't we? That should we oppose Jesus and oppose his church, in the end we stand before God and we face wrath and we face judgment, we face condemnation from God and we face anger. Primarily we all know that's the shame here. Do you know what I find really interesting though? All of the commentators, and I'm with them, they all agree that there's a more immediate element here that given Peter's 
evangelistic heart all the way through this letter, that the idea here of opponents being shamed, it also has a, an immediate hope that by us reacting well to opposition, by responding well to opponents, do you see the hope? The hope is that these opponents might actually come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they, through our questions, through our answers, they might repent and believe. And so I'm going to end this sermon by taking everything that we've, we've looked at and reversing it and turning it all on its head. Because we've thought about Christians, right? We've thought about Christians and we've thought about their response to opponents. Here's what I want you to consider as you sit in the room. Every one of you, from the youngest to the oldest in here, and you listening at home. Could it be that right now, you are one of the opponents of the people of God? Could it be that you are an opponent of Christ and his people? I mean, is it the case that you quite simply scoff at your parents and you scoff at your family and their attempts to love Jesus and follow in his ways? Does that sound like you? Is it the case that though you want community and perhaps you're lonely and that's great city. Perhaps those things are true, but you kind of ridicule the people of God behind their backs. You want maybe their friendship, but you laugh at their dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you actually an opponent of the body of Jesus Christ? If so, in all that is in me, I beg of you to see the error of that. And to come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you consider what God has done that you might, you might be free from that coming wrath. Consider what Jesus Christ has done. That you might not have to stand in judgment and condemnation before God. What has he done? He has been shamed. The majestic Christ. The almighty son of God has lowered himself and he has humbled himself to be willingly given over to his enemies. Willingly given to the mercy of his enemies that you might have an opportunity at this moment to be saved and freed and redeemed and cleansed and forgiven. So I do sincerely plead that you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You repent and you believe. And this morning, in so doing, like all of the people of God in this room and listening at home, in so doing, come to know Christ and know hope. Know in Jesus Christ an eschatological, eternal, everlasting confidence of relationship with God. Friends, let us bow our heads and look to our Savior and Redeemer in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray to you because we are sinful and rebellious. We are hard, hard of heart. And we know, Lord God, that outside of your grace, that will be the way of things, eternity. So as we meet like this, and as we meet as your people, we plead with you to break down stubbornness of hearts. We pray that if there are people in the room 
people listening, watching online who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. We pray that you would change it and change it now. Oh God, we are so helpless, but you are not. So we pray by your Spirit that you would make new Christians, that you would bring forth new creations, that you would grant new birth, that your name would receive all of the praise. We pray in Christ's perfect name. Amen.